0: This is Pamela Kuhn, and the curtain is up on Center Stage, the show about the arts and the artists behind their work. You have just heard the evocatively haunting Tchaikovsky, Ode to a Cherubim, sung by the USSR Ministry of Culture Chamber Choir, conducted by Valery Polyansky. It is an apt introduction today for my guest, a man who spent years in the former Soviet Union war photographer and photojournalist James Hill from the New York Times. And today I bring you part two of our conversation. Covering war from the front lines in Iraq, Afghanistan, Ukraine, Beslan, these battlefields were his canvas. His pictures have earned him a Pulitzer Prize. He lived with soldiers on both sides of life and death battles. He would drop his camera long enough to protect the anonymity of operatives working enemy lines. He shared unrelenting benediction with the bodies of those who died, captured in a moment, with his lens. But he also saw the beauty of another kind of war that of the art of the matador in the bullfighting ring, or his photo of World War II decorated veteran Yuri Stepanovich Zaguskin, simply holding a bunch of flowers. Seek out these personal and vivid recollections in James's book, Somewhere Between War and Peace. But what spoke to me about James Hill was his picture from the old Moscow Circus, a gorgeous, sylph-like vision of an acrobat flying through the air within the fading popularity of the Russian circus. The backdrop was smoke and chiffon, while the acrobat caught in mid-air seemed to be flying into eternity it left me with hope that james hill was envisioning a kind of freedom for himself from the indelible scars that all photojournalists have earned as they document the realities of the world
1: When I first started working at the New York Times, there was a very different approach to photographs in the paper. They were something where you really had to have a photograph of the person named in the first paragraph as the main photograph. It was a very formulaic approach to how you use images inside the newspaper. And also, this is in the mid-90s, also there was... I wouldn't say a reactionary approach to photographs in general, but they were very much the sort of addendum. There wasn't really a lot of credit given to photography. Mm -hmm. And I remember once that I had an editor who was battling to keep uh, a photograph as the main photograph to run with the story. And a top editor just didn't like it. And he was saying, um, there's too much space in this photograph. And I laughed when I got told this story because it reminds me of that scene in Amadeus where you have Mozart playing his piece and the emperor says, it's very good, but too many notes. And so I think that's an interesting, it's an interesting discussion about how every form of culture, every art form, whether it's illustrative, it has its, people see it in different ways, it's very much a question of perception. And you know, what to one person is a fabulous work of art or a fabulous song or a fabulous piece of music, to others, it's, it's like, Cats scratching their claws along a blackboard, or it's just oh, like a, no, an no, ugly no, wall. And so that's been an interesting experience in general, in fact, working with editors. And it's something strange enough that one does less today because in the old days, one would send photographs as unprocessed film. In other words, even for the New York Times or Time or Newsweek, the clients that I worked for a lot in the 90s. You would send unprocessed film via uh, couriers to London or Paris or New York, and you would never actually see the pictures until they appeared in the newspaper. Whereas now, as when you're working in digital, of course, you're already making a pre-selection that you're then sending to the editors. In other words, you're already acting as an editor before the editors have taken one. You have more control yeah, you have to control about what what you send them. so you're you're putting all the you know all the dirty underwear that's all pushed to the side, you know, and only yeah. the brilliant, wonderful crisp things get sent along. But also in a strange way, it's slightly removed the re- relationship or downtoned the relationship that I think existed between photographers and editors is that you know it's a question of trust because you have to trust them, though you have no control over it at all. Now you have some control. and I then you were it. very much in their hands, and then you know also you could ask them, it was more of a discussion about why they ran this, why they ran that. And also, I think the editors enjoyed mm-hmm. the process much more, because when you look at a contact sheet, uh, first of all, people photographed much less. So now, for instance, I remember when I photographed the, the marriage of Kate and William. So when they came out onto the balcony for what it was, 15 minutes, I think I took a 1,000 frames. Mm-hmm. So if you translate that into film, that is about 26 rolls of film. Wow. That'd be a lot of film to shoot in a day. And what editors said is that they enjoyed the process of watching how a photographer worked by looking at the contact sheets. In other words, you have a scene and then you can see how the photographer approached it, what they found interesting, how they worked their way around a moment. And so they also felt, they felt more connected to the way way in which you were seeing. Whereas if you're just sending 40 pictures to an editor today, they're not really seeing that process. So the relationship in many ways, it's become less interesting and less rewarding and I think less um, helpful, both to editors and to photographers.
0: Right, and this fantastic communion of work, you know. Well, it's- I think, you know, it's,
1: it's, it's, that to me was also one of the aspects which drew me into photography was the tactile nature, you know, the, 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 the films, the cameras that you had, the Leicas, mm-hmm. the... And there was a certain romanticism, I would say, in that process. So that editorial process is also linked to the pre-digital age of photography, which I think was, I'm not saying it was better, it wasn't better, but it was different. And there's certain aspects of that which I really enjoyed, but there were also many technological downsides to it. I mean, it's been an interesting part of my career to progress through the the digital era, this is so I feel like I've sort of, like, one, you know, gone one—you know—gone really through an arc of, of major change in the role of photography and photojournalism. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. I have the impression that you are that kind of Ernest Hemingway kind of guy that wanted to to be a rover. You weren't happy to be just in one place. You know, you wanted the grit of all the work as well. And well, I have to
1: say, that growing up in England. Growing up on an island has, I think, a subliminary effect on people. You you feel like you're on a, you're in a small place, and it was interesting when I, because I did history, studied history at Oxford, and the longer I stayed there, I was there for three years, the 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 smaller it felt to me as a place, even though of course it's full of brilliant people, mm-hmm. and I really felt the necessity that I had to go and travel, and. I come from a foreign family in the sense that my father was born in Trinidad in the West Indies. So he was half English, half Portuguese. My mother grew up in South Africa and came to England in the 50s after university. So even though I was English and I feel very English, I also was very aware growing up of this other world or these other worlds that existed out there. And also my time as a student coincided with the end of, you know, the coming down of the Berlin War. It was a moment of real excitement and hope, I think, in international affairs. And I had a real hunger to go out and see that I studied history. And so you could feel that history was not happening in Great Britain. It was the era of Thatcher. That's right. And what I felt was I had to go somewhere Somewhere else to see history, and that was happening in Eastern Europe, and so that's why I ended up in former Soviet Union, in Ukraine, in 1991, because that felt like a frontier of history, and I wanted to be on the frontier. I think Hemingway is maybe a big; those are big boots to fill, and I think that's a little bit beyond my foot size. But you know, but no, I, I think, think you're that, up there. But I think that, of course, you know, that's. I think it is a romantic. It was only it felt like at the time a romantic profession. Yeah. Being a, a foreign reporter. And I was a little bit seduced by that. And also the days when you would look at news magazines like Time Magazine and Newsweek and you you know saw these double pages of images. It just felt like, you know, I want to be there. I yep. want to be taking those pictures. So that's what really what spurred me into in, into this profession. And so I was seduced by it. I'm not sure if I was sold or you know a fake bill of goods, but anyway, the I don't I don't feel that looking back that I was sold something fake. But that's what brought me into it. I really felt there was a world out there to be seen. History was there happening somewhere else when there I was living and I wanted to go and photograph it.
0: So the way you're speaking with your colleagues, it seems like there is an old boys' club, so to speak, still present. And it must be fascinating on your journeys with them. They have a different way of handling people. They've seen everything. They've seen everything from Vietnam to the present. And you can learn from that. And it's, I-
1: it's very interesting who you work with. And some of the reporters I've had been privileged to work with are really amazing writers. And I always find it very interesting when I be somewhere and to read the next morning's paper and to see what they would written about what we would witnessed the day before. And there's a particular journalist who I have a very deep admiration for called Dexter Filkins, who's now at the New Yorker, because we were together in Afghanistan. And then we did the invasion of Iraq. And his words just felt so true to me when I Mm, mm. read the next one. I went, that was it. Mm -hmm. It was Mm -hmm. right, exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. And it's a gift because it's complicated to translate into words what you see. What you And and of course, you know, and, and, you know, also I've worked with a fair number of, excuse my French, as they say, assholes, uh, certain journalists who think, you know, who are just very egocentric and just very unpleasant to work with. And then, you know, also with other photographers, a a very great friend of mine who was someone I never did work with, but who weird enough turned out to be my neighbor was a guy called Horst Fass, Mm -hmm. who was the head of the Associated Press operation in Vietnam. And we met in a very weird way. I was in Afghanistan being interviewed by the BBC and he was in the studio in London. And at the end of the show, the producer said to me, what's your address? So we'll send you the check. This is in the days, I think, when the BBC had some money and they sent you checks for participating in talk shows. And I give him my address. And then and and Horse goes, well, that's the next door street to where I live. And then he explains to me where he lives. And I go that's who's in that apartment. Because I saw this <laughs> apartment with all these Buddhas in it. And I always wanted to live in that apartment. It was horsed. So when I came back to London, we went off. He was still at AP in London. then, And we went to Elvino, Vino, its a legendary restaurant on Fleet Street, which was the old haunt of the days of Fleet Street. And we went. I think we had two bottles of wine at lunch in the days when I was able to drink at that amount at lunch. And he told me all about his his days in in Vietnam. And I actually went to Vietnam for the New York Times to write a story about his role in in photographing Vietnam because he was the guy who picked up Nick Ut for the Associated Press because Nick Ut's brother, who took the famous napalm picture, Nick Outh's brother worked for the AP as a photographer and was killed. And the mother comes and says, you've got to take my boy and my youngest boy because there's no one to look after him. And also, says, "I can't take him. He's 16. And he says, well, he, you know, he can do something. He can make the tea.
0: Mm-hmm. So horse said, all
1: right, all right, I'll take him. And so he taught him how to develop film. And then he taught him how to take pictures. And then six years later, he takes probably the most important picture of the Vietnam War.
0: Extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Absolutely extraordinary.
1: But horse was like the most unpretentious guy. Mm-hmm. And also a terrible realist. And there's this uh, story that Halberstam tells about Horst. And horse goes like... Uh, we won't sit around and talk about the good old days in Vietnam because there weren't any good old days in Vietnam. So what I think is interesting, you know, of course, it, a lot of this war reporting gets mythologized. It's about sort of, you know, these sort of greater than life starts. And of course, some people are. But it's also, I think, what Horst said in that phrase was that it's a dirty business watching other people in misery as well. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. you know, so don't, don't fool yourself in thinking there's something glamorous and wonderful about it. Even though that happened, you know, I mean, because you know, Robert Kappa dated, so you know, you know, Ingrid Bergman. So you know, it's like obviously, if you're the greatest war photographer, you could date with like the most beautiful woman in the world. But I mean, I think one, what it, what it said to me is what I've always felt is that I've always been very wary of people who somehow build it up into something that is not.
0: just recently saw in an inter- interview anderson cooper did with james Nachtwey, and who i'm sure you know well
1: Nachtwey's a, a not a few notches above me in terms of the um his, 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 interesting his work guy.
0: Yeah. simple man from new hampshire with a rather profound history of photojournalism on the war every war front and it was interesting to me, you know, he talked about the emotional toll, but also about the physical toll. And, and I have to ask you the same question. You know, is, is has been left with hearing impairment. He's got shrapnel embedded in his face and his, and his knee. And, you know, he, he's lived with grenades literally in the front seat of a car. I mean, you know, what about you, James? Have, have you borne any of the war scars? Well, I've never,
1: I've never had a bullet in me. I mean, Naqtui will say, what always astonished me with Nactway's work, and I've been places with him too, mm-hmm. is that he really was somehow always closer than everybody else. So when this thing about Kappa, about being closer, Nactway yeah. was always somehow that bit closer to the action. And when he saw the photographs, you just felt that much closer to everything. He had this ability. It's, it's, it's an extraordinary manner. And then also this famous picture of him being... of someone photographing him, he's kind of in, he's literally so in the middle of it. He's like... Yes,
0: yes, yes, yes.
1: In a position which no one else, in my generation, I mean, he's a little bit older than me, but he's, what, 15 years older than me, probably. Um, I don't know when else in sort of roughly my generation who has managed to work in that way. It's... um, No, so, I mean, I've never had um, a bullet in me, mercifully, but... um, I ache like you know but there we are that was just that's from everything and else there we
0: are that's it <laughs> you know yeah I find knockwe interesting too in that as you say he he gets up close and personal he talked about the power of the hands and the eyes and I've noticed that in your photographs as well especially with the eyes if you can catch that moment where the eyes say everything it's it's like a bingo moment for you isn't it
1: it's interesting when you look at, at how you take a picture what you focus on um i think when you start out as a photographer you feel very aware of your uh, inability to capture what is in front of you it's very frustrating in fact and that's interesting when i look through old contact sheets that i took in the 90s i can when i see the scene that was there i think oh what a mess you made of that one you know what you know how poor the end result was how Mm. How lacking I was in the skill to capture the scene that was there in front of me, I simply didn't have the visual tools that come that come with time that you basically mm-hmm. you pick up. A lot of them is they become sort of unconscious ways of capturing a scene,
0: yeah,
1: um, and I think that you know you you end up creating a style. I mean, some people like Nawa. almost recognizable it's more recognizable for people who do portraits like you know say Annie Leibovitz because she sort of makes a sort of mise-en-scene but you know there are photographers who have a certain style and I think that almost any photographer ends up having a certain style maybe it's more similar to others and maybe you can recognize it or not but you end up seeing things a certain way. Mm -hmm. And of course, the eyes are what draw you into a person. It's, mm-hmm. it's the it's, mm-hmm. it's the one thing that has to be sharp. You know, the the hair, the neck, whatever, the clothing. Yeah, it doesn't matter. But the eyes, they have to be there. And um and also, of course, I think it's like, a place like Afghanistan where you say, Afghanistan. We had these extraordinary green eyes of some of the the men and the women. I was fascinated by the eyes in Afghanistan, and of course, especially in Afghanistan, because you can see you couldn't see the women's eyes because they were in burqas. That was also sort of made you sort of exactly. doubly focus on the men.
0: Exactly. And your work in Afghanistan is what won you the Pulitzer Prize. I understand. Well, I
1: was know. part of a team, but there were five of us. It wasn't just me. Um, though the, generally the picture that is used when they talk about that award is this photograph from Mazar-e-Sharif of the Hazrat Ali Shrine where you see this host of, of, of doves uh, in front of the shrine and this man feeding them and it was a very it was a very powerful experience also because my wife found out she was pregnant two weeks after i got into afghanistan oh,
0: okay. and
1: she said to me when you're coming out i said two weeks honey and which of course was a lie though i didn't know it was a lie when i said it but it turned out to be a lie mm-hmm. and you know three months later i eventually got out but it was impossible to give up on being on the front page every single day i mean that's when i really understood what a what kind of a, a drug you know that kind of work can be on absolutely. you absolutely um, and but also because this country itself was so so moving and i don't think i read anywhere where the contrast of uh, the war and the people in other words you'd have the 21st century above you with f18s or b52s and then just people praying in in these sort of you know these quasi barren Lands like in Badakhshan, which is just terrible year after year for drought, there was nothing growing. And it just seemed such a strange place. I've never been anywhere like Afghanistan, it's really the most unique place that I've been. And I had this extraordinary fixer. Fixers are people that, it's a strange word, that used to help journalists. Right. Okay. You call them translators, you call the fixers, depends how you what they are. Anyway, Daoud, Daoud was hired by Dexter one day. He was fired the same day because he really couldn't speak English. But he had the great ability. He never said the word no. So when you asked him at midnight if it was possible to find some petrol, because the generator gone down, and you only managed to send two pictures because I had the shittiest uh modem. And I can only send at 2,400 board. I don't know what that is. But basically, it took 20 minutes to send a 200 kilobyte picture.
0: Oh, wow.
1: That is something that is about um, about 30 times smaller than a picture on your iPhone. And 20 minutes to send it. So it, it took you two hours to send, roughly two hours, to send five or six pictures.
0: We forget about these practicalities. And, and so, people.
1: and of course, you know, and then the then the, the petrol ran out and then the, the generally went down. So your sat went down and then you go like, doubt, do you think we could get some petrol? And you always went, maybe. <laughs> when I talk How about optimistic. hope, when I talk about hope, about being romantic, it's doubt saying to me, maybe this to me is the epitome of Oh my of god! To save <laughs> my lives on the road to between Herat and Kandahar, which is another reason why I love Dawood, but But um, that was it. You know, this—it's—it um, was in this place where it's so barren and yet so rich at the same time. Yes,
0: uh, yes, yes, yes. I understand. And
1: that—that that aspect to me was uh, really quite extraordinary.
0: was the paradox. The paradox yeah. is And then he was young. like.
1: And so, um, yeah, could we get some petrol down? Maybe, maybe. Do <laughs> we can get some shashlik. Yeah, you know, I was really,
0: I was really interested in this process because none of we more, mere mortals out here know how this works. You know, you guys are sent on assignment by a paper, by a magazine. Do they they equip you with money for bribes? Do they just well, I mean, up with contacts, or is that left to you?
1: Going back to Afghanistan, this is a very important. Uh, moment of change in the business. This was really the first major digital war. The first digital cameras came out during the Kosovo crisis. But the first time they really were readily available was for the Afghan war. And if they hadn't existed, we would not have been working in the same way. So how did used to work? When I first started, I remember going on assignment for Reuters in Ukraine. And I would be shooting colour film. And then I would go to my hotel i would have a, have a hotel or'd go to have some office somewhere, and then I'd have to go let's say to my hotel room I'd go to the bathroom and I would have one of those little weird coils you know that you used to use to heat up water for tea mm-hmm. because when you process black and white film, you process that at twenty degrees Celsius when you process color film it has to be at thirty eight degrees so it's a much higher temperature, so you can't just get out of you have to get it precise so you'd be there with your with your um with your core heating up the water to get, so get the to get the chemicals to the right temperature, so you can make process your film, and then you get the film out. Then you take a loop and you look at the film, and then you have a scanner which you then scan and you send an image down the wire. But I mean, imagine I do that in Afghanistan, it would be simply impossible.
0: No, no. So
1: no. the first digital war was a major change in the way in which photographers worked. And even if you take Afghan, I'm sorry, take Vietnam. You know, horse would tell me that. You know, you go down to the military airport. You get on a chopper. You fly out, and then you pick a chopper coming back the same day, or maybe at worst the next morning. Or you give your, your film to somebody who then fly back, and they get it picked up at the at the airport in Saigon. So, in other words, even though you know you're shooting on film, everything was getting turned around you know the same day or the next day. Wow. Whereas in Afghanistan, that simply wouldn't have been possible. So we were there um, carrying vast amounts of cash. I maybe like ten thousand dollars in cash on me hmm and so you're wearing that in one of those sort of things that you sort of slip into your trousers uh you know sort of waist belt mm-hmm. and so then you have to find a driver Though if you were the journalist you share the driver and then you have to have your fixer or your translator and so we had um we've hired a guy who had a pickup truck so on the back of the pickup truck we had our mattresses we had our generator we were carrying our you know our sat phones our computers my cameras and every day we'd be charging up all our stuff and going out in the field and then coming back, sending out the pictures at twenty four hundred board. So the five pictures, and the editors wow. used to bitch they were only get five pictures a day. But I'd say my editing skills had never been better than they were in Afghanistan. Exactly, so I really you had- work it. It wasn't like I'll send you forty in half an hour. Like forget about it. You know, if you're lucky, yeah. I'll send you two. I'll send you five in two hours.
0: You had to make it count. Yeah. Wow. So you became quite adept at this, at the whole fix-it job, you know, behind this. Oh so, yeah,
1: in terms of connecting to Wi-Fi, you'd be amazed. That's, I'm not much, of, much good at computer stuff, but I could, I could connect to anything anywhere, pretty much. You know, it's like uh,
0: Wow. The old so,
1: telephone lines in the former Soviet Union, deepest part of Siberia. You, know, you name it, I could find a wise way of sending <laughs> a photograph.
0: Please join me next week on Center Stage as I bring you the final part of my interview with James Hill. The riches shared in this candid interview allow us to hear firsthand how photojournalists are the historians of their age and the risks they have taken to leave us that history. You can find more information about James Hill at the New York Times website and at mjrhill.com. I hope you will also visit my website, centerstagewithpamelacoon.com for more of my filmed interviews and radio shows. Until next week, stay safe out there, everyone. This is Pamela Kuhn, and the curtain is now down on Center Stage.